0: Well, good morning, all. It's good to see you. We're continuing with Acts again. Acts lays the foundations for discipleship. So, if you're going to understand what a disciple is, or how to be one, or how to sort of sort out perhaps all of the popular uh, versions of discipleship and what's true, and, then it's good to start in the book of Acts. It's sort of the foundation of, well, the whole New Testament. Jesus has risen. The Gospels present Jesus here on earth, what he said, what he did, what he accomplished at Calvary, and now we see Jesus reigning from heaven and from Acts on. That's what it's all about. So Acts chapter 2 starts with this incredible event, the coming of the Holy Spirit, at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and there's a big crowd there and they're seeing the phenomena as the literal flames of fire on people's heads, some people, and the crowd's puzzling as to what it means. Some mock, some honest questions, others ambivalent, I'm sure, but any crowd's going to have all sorts of kinds of people in. It. And Peter stands up and he says, okay, knowing, knowing how crowds operate and what the people are generally thinking, saying, asking, wondering he gets up and he gives the first message that we have. And he starts with Joel, interpreting the most immediate thing here is the Holy Spirit outpoured. This is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. Uh, in the last days, God will pour out his Spirit on all flesh. And then he talks about Jesus, what he did. It's a little basket of loaves and fishes there. By the way, I added that this week if somebody was noticing. Um, <clears throat> representing his wonders and signs that he did his mighty works and God testified concerning his son God verified his son and but you all, you people, you crowd before us you had a participation at some level in his death uh, some more than others but you participated in his death that's a fact gave him over to the Roman armies but God raised him from the dead and so that's Peter's starting point where he begins to talk about Psalm 16. And just as he had gone to Joel 2 to talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit, he now goes to Psalm 16 and says, this is the fulfillment, this resurrection of Christ is a fulfillment of Psalm 16. Then he starts 2 Samuel 7. And 2 Samuel 7 is a sort of a big thing in Scripture, so we've spent some time on it. <clears throat> I hope it's been valuable to you I hope that when you're reading the scriptures you're being reminded of the significance of the Davidic covenant as you are sort of encountering David here and David there I remember as a young Christian I'd read it and I'd get to David and I would just be excited about it although I had no clue Um, and I always wondered why the Holy Spirit would just sort of he's the son of David I would just kind of pause there in my soul and the Spirit of the Lord would just sort of put a little halo around it in my mind and in my heart but I never knew why until, uh, I don't know, some years later as I started studying things and understanding things, got out of uh, the headaches of dispensational views of things and covenant theology views of things and really started understanding the covenants themselves. Second Samuel 7 is a big deal. And so we looked a little bit at David. <clears throat> David lived from 1040 to 970 B.C. If you just want to say he lived 1,000 B.C., good enough. I mean, it's easy to keep in the mind. That's why I do. I'll say about this, about that, because I can't remember all the little details. About 1,000 B.C. And David was a prophet, Peter says. And as a prophet, he wrote psalms by the Holy Spirit. And he wrote some of these psalms, we are told by Peter. He wrote some of these psalms as he was meditating on, thinking on, and then singing about the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 and the Davidic covenant, and that's why it's so important. It's it's the foundation of just so much prophetic statement, and so to see its significance, to see its importance. Um, And so we've sort of had a little little excursion on the Davidic covenant a bit, and I'm gonna keep showing this slide. Some of the other slides you may not know I drop off, and as I feel like, okay, we've had them for several weeks, and everybody's been here to see it, because not everybody shows up every week. <clears throat> but this one I'm going to keep doing, and I hope it becomes screen burn on your eyeballs. You know what screen burn is? If you, oh gosh, even some of the young folks know this. If you leave your, you know, your monitor on for a long time and uh, with the same image, when you turn it off, the image will be burned there. They've improved the technology a lot, but you can still get screen burn in certain technologies. And Well, I hope this screen burns on your eyeballs and your brain and in your heart. Because these five covenants these structure the history of redemption. They structure everything about the coming of Christ into the world to save sinners and the securing of that in a new covenant that will end up being the foundation of of a new heavens and a new earth. I know there's some who want to talk about this covenant of grace that overshadows things, and it's got a good purpose because its purpose is to show the continuity of the history of redemption. And I hope I'm showing that here with that little yellow big arrow, yellow arrow, going through everything. But uh, the scriptures don't say that the covenant of grace or a covenant of grace is the foundation of eternity. Hebrews, when it talks about the, an eternal covenant, the blood of an eternal covenant, it's talking about the new covenant. That's what it's all about. And so this new covenant is the fulfillment of all these things, and it's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and that's an important item. And so as we sort of look maybe from a little bit different perspective. We've got Old Testament promises and New Testament fulfillments. David is writing many psalms, some of them on the basis of 2 Samuel 7, some of them on the basis of other things. He blends the Abrahamic covenant as all nations are being brought in. He talks about the sufferings of the Christ and those kinds of things. But David's writing about these things. That's why the psalms are so important, so vibrant, and we see this in this first really preaching and if you go into some of the other chapters in acts 1 through 5 and you see this preaching you see there's always this appeal to the old testament and to many times to the psalms many times the psalm 110 which we're going to be looking at now that this is how the, the this is the foundation the the backdrop of everything that happens in the new So, if you're just to take some samples, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sufferings of the Christ that point us to that cross, and there are other psalms that do the same, other places in Scripture, Isaiah 53, places like that. But Psalm 22 is the one quoted most. But its relevance to the Davidic covenant is this, and you can remember it Psalm 22, verse 22, so 22, 22, it shifts abruptly. From someone being crucified. And the picture of a crucifixion is painted. My, my hands and my feet are pierced. All the efforts to try to make the Hebrew not say that do not work. It does say that. <clears throat> my hands and my feet are pierced. And then there's this abrupt shift. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And the rest of the psalm is about victory. Victory of the kingdom of God. The kingship of David. David isn't specifically mentioned, but whenever you see kingship, I mean, there's only one, one thing it's pointing to, one thing it's deriving from. And so there's this kingship of David, and the nations are being gathered. And so the psalm is just covers from the sufferings of the Christ and the glories that should follow in just such an impressive way. But that was written by David, and 2 Samuel 7 is one of the foundations of it. Then there's Psalm 16, of course, the resurrection, and we've gone over that. And then there's Psalm 110, and the reign of Christ. That's talked about in Psalm 2 and others, but Psalm 110 is the one most most often quoted, Psalm 2, right after it. Those are important psalms, and we'll be looking at Psalm 110 today. And then something I think that we can miss, I know I missed for years, didn't think about it, the psalms that talk about all nations, right? And I just go, yeah, I'm getting the Holy Spirit, just sort of fills your soul on that, but you just feel like, well, you're just in heaven in the presence of God and, and your spirit, and... And you don't realize that, no, it's not just some generic thing that God's going to save all nations. This is kind of like the point of all these psalms. This is the point about the sufferings of the Christ, about the resurrection of the Christ, about the reign of Christ, is that he is going to bring the kingdom of God to embrace all nations. That's in the psalms. You don't have to go to some obscure prophecy to discern that. You don't have to go, oh, well, Paul just has a gospel to the Gentiles. Not so. This is the gospel in the Psalms to everybody, Jew and Gentile. They express a future kingdom of God that will embrace all nations where Jew and Gentile will blend together into one new humanity and that is so evident in the Psalms when you start reading them with the perspective of David and others just writing of this great coming kingdom. Psalm 117, shortest Psalm. Praise the Lord. All you nations, laud him, all you peoples. His merciful kindness is great toward us. And the, the MF, the, the faithfulness of the Lord, endures forever. So, Psalms. I mean, if all you had the Psalms, you've got, you've got the whole prophetic utterance of things. I have no idea why that's bothering me. So there you have the, uh, the reign of Christ presented in these Psalms. And it's presented not in the style of, you know, a confession that I tend to like. I like, I like catechisms, really, confessions are like too big. I can't get my, but I, I can get a little catechism that's really succinct, captures everything, and most of the time you miss the nuances are there for a reason. Uh, I like that, but that's, that's not how God presents, presents these things. God presents the sufferings of the Christ in psalms, in poetry. In singing, in hoping, believing, rejoicing, worshiping. God presents the resurrection of the coming Messiah again in Psalms. In the singing, the hoping, the believing, the worshiping, the music, the dancing. Yes, the dancing. They did that in their culture. The reign of Christ. Again, it's not just a doctrine. It's a grand reality that you can just sink your soul into. Christ reigns. My favorite Puritan is John Flavel. Well, he's my second favorite. Maybe my third. Anyway, but anyway, he's way up there on my list of Puritans. And I was introduced to Reformed theology in a revival, and the first thing I read, it was the, the night the revival started. It was powerful. I stepped into a brother's house. He called me on the phone. He said, Steve, you've got to come over. I said, why? He said, i got a book from Kriegel. You've got to come read it. And he, Dennis had given us some other books that weren't so great, so I was a little skeptical. He says, no, you got to come, so I come, and, and I knock on the door, and his wife, just a little bitty thing, he's like six foot two, she's like four foot eight, she kind of opens the door of their house, the door opens, and I'm looking in, and she's here, and I see Dennis, and he's got this book, and he's just like, like looking off into space, you know, it might be some, you know, picture of some great person, some statesman, you know, reading her famous person, and I my mind, of course, you know, you quickly think these things. I went, mean, oh, what in the world is going on? And I stepped into his little house. I mean, his house was no bigger than my living room. I stepped into his front room, and I thought I'd stepped into heaven. And he said, you have to read this, and he handed me John Flable. And remember, I was a Pentecostal at the time. I wasn't a Pentecostal. I was in Pentecostalism at the time. It's all I knew. It's all I knew of Christianity. And so I just kind of opened the book, and here's the title of a chapter the kingly office of Christ as providentially executed for the redeemed in the world. Like, I don't have any idea. I couldn't understand any of those words, but I started reading it. and I got about halfway through the sermon, and I just, I, all I could do was just weep for joy and for gladness. And I just saw in my heart in that moment the reign of Christ just drifting off into eternity as reign and how it impacts us on earth, and how he executes this office to save his people from their sin in every generation. That's why he rules the nations with a rod of iron. He doesn't do it for the fun of it. He does it, does it to save his people. You need somebody in the heart of Iran saved, Jesus is going to go and get that person because he's got a rod of iron. They can have all their missiles, they can have all their attitudes, all their whatever, he's going to get them because he has a rod of iron. The kingly office of Christ providentially executed for the redeemed. And that's what's here. And so all of this and the making of disciples of all nations, it's all about hope and faith and joy and worship and music, song, every expression, human expression possible. And as one fellow said, I was went to this church, Gwen and I were, left one church, reformed church, that ended up being problematic, um, and <clears throat> so we're trying to find a church, yes, we were church hoppers, we were, we were church seekers, there are seeker churches, but we were church seekers, and <clears throat> just trying to find a place, and we go to this one place, it's a Baptist church, and the preaching was, you know, talk about Jesus, but it, you know, it, it was, it was a challenging place to go, and there's a Sunday school class, and there's this very chubby guy, even chubbier than me, and he was teaching Sunday school. And I don't, you know, it's just how we are. You, you see someone, and you don't think much of them. And man, he gave a great Sunday school class, and he gave a statement that has been in my mind and heart. Uh, just defined worship for me, because it's one of those things you. You thought, yeah, I should have come up with this myself 20 years ago, but he just said it in a way that just captured the essence of it. And he said, worship is not the response of the emotions to an atmosphere. It's a response of the heart to the glory of God. That is worship. And that are these psalms. As they wrote these Psalms, they saw the glory of God. They saw a future kingdom. They saw a coming Messiah. They saw a salvation, as Chris prayed this morning or said this morning, is like no other. And they wrote. And they wrote these things. A Messiah will suffer, a Messiah will rise, a Messiah will ascend and be exalted and reigned, and he will bring salvation to all nations. That's what discipleship is about. You cannot have discipleship if it's not founded in this. And so much of today's discipleship, or the terminologies used, is just so, I don't know, it's just, it's just so anemic, it's most often used of a, oh, we'll have a class on discipleship as if it's some tertiary thing to Christianity. Here, if you really want to you know, get jet propelled, then come to this discipleship class. And I'm like, no, being a disciple is rooted and grounded in these things. You cannot have discipleship without this in some way at the bottom of it all. The worship of God, the poetic expression of the kingdom of God, and following God for all the people of God for all time. These psalms are awesome. And so as we think of the psalms that Peter introduced in Acts chapter 2, Psalm 16 we've been through, and Psalm 110 we're going to talk about. But they all fit into this scheme, and they're all backed by 2 Samuel 7, as we'll see Peter doesn't only appeal to the fact that David was dead, therefore Psalm 16 didn't apply to him. He's also going to appeal to the fact that David is dead, therefore he's not exalted and at the right hand of God. Now, when I leave, I hope nobody keeps appealing to my death as, you know, hey, Steve's dead, therefore. Steve's dead, therefore. But David, for David, being dead was an important thing. And his body being in a tomb was an important thing because everything he wrote about was not about his own kingship or even the immediate kingship of Solomon. But everything he wrote about was the kingship of a future Messiah. And that's the point of it. Now we've looked in terms of this Davidic covenant and how significant it is. We looked at some of the Old Testament passages. They're key, but they should be ones that should pop into your mind. They should be old hat to you after a while. Isaiah 55, the sure mercies of David. Jeremiah 23, the righteous branch of David and the Lord our righteousness. Ezekiel 34 and 37, David as the great shepherd king, which you read in John 10 and other places. Zechariah 13, that shepherd is stricken for sin. These are key passages and all of them are extrapolating the Davidic covenant and applying the Davidic covenant to the future coming king. We Got into the New Testament, and Matthew 1 begins with the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, begins with that. Acts 2 we're looking at, the first sermon keeps going back to the Davidic covenant. He goes there a number of times. Romans chapter 1, you know, Paul sort of opens up with, with the gospel and the cornerstone of Jesus uh, being in, <clears throat> of the seed of David as part of that cornerstone of the gospel. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul reminds Timothy, Timothy, as a preacher, you're at Ephesus. It's an important church. It's going to affect all of Asia Minor. You need to be straight. You need to be clear because you're affecting just the lives of hundreds of thousands of people and hundreds and hundreds of churches. And he said, You remember Jesus Christ, who is of the seed of David. That is important and vital to the gospel. Not every time you open the book, but in key points that are the sort of pillars of Christianity. In Revelation 22, the last words of Jesus that he presents to us, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. This Davidic covenant is everything. So this morning we'll be dealing with Psalm 110 as it applies to Jesus and his kingship. And it sort of comes in two. I guess you would say... I have no idea what that is. Uh, it'll come in two uh, sort of sections. One is a declaration, and then another is an actual appeal to Psalm 110. So, a bit of a lengthy introduction, but I just had the sense this week of, again, just reminding us all just read those Psalms all the time and read them with the Noahic covenant in place, with the <coughs> Abrahamic covenant in place read it with the types and symbols being drawn from that Mosaic covenant, and then read it as from the Davidic covenant as placed, place, because the Psalms and the prophets were all written after those four covenants are already established. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and we want to uh, just continue with the words of Peter. Lord, we wonder, what, what must you have thought? Lord God, our Father, you're in heaven Your son is in heaven with you. He's at your right hand. You're on your throne. He's at your right hand. And the whole entire focus that you have is on this little place, on a little planet, in a little backward country, in a little man who's poor, doesn't have much, who's preaching to a crowd of people after you've poured out your Holy Spirit. All of heaven must have been quiet and listening. The first time the gospel is proclaimed since the resurrection and exaltation of your son. The first time you confront, by the Holy Spirit through Peter, you confront the murderers of your son. Lord Jesus, you confront those who killed you with a vengeance. Lord, you confront people who elicited the the Roman army to help them out. The whole world was against you. And there you were on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you, in the midst of all this, why have you forsaken me? And yet there you are at the right hand, having accomplished redemption from all your people. Lord, for the the first time hearing this gospel message that must be more sweet to yours than to ours, being just proclaimed. All that you have written for thousands of years by the Holy Spirit in that Old Testament now being summarized and stated as being fulfilled. What a victory. What power, what glory. What an awesome gospel. So Lord, as we continue with Peter's words, and just pray you'd fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit. I can't do that. If I start to say I can, then I need to be gone. No one can do that but you. And uh, so, Lord, just uh, pray you would bless every heart, every mind this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Peter continues. He's talked about Second Samuel. He's talked about David writing Psalm 16 in view of that. It says, you all have killed the Lord of glory, but this Jesus... Not any Jesus. This isn't some general thing. People will talk about being spiritual in very generalized terms. And the Bible is not general, or it's not spiritual in generalized terms. The Bible is specific. There's a specific God that made this universe with specific characteristics, with specific essence, with specific being. The specific personhood, there is a specific God. This Jesus God raised up, there is a specific gospel. The good news centers in Jesus, and Jesus alone. This Jesus God raised up again. Peter still drawing on the resurrection as not only a Psalm 16 prophecy, but as a Psalm 16 fulfillment. The psalm prophesied, 1000 B.C., in the very words of the Messiah himself, the Spirit of Christ in David. And now this psalm is fulfilled. It's a bold declaration of a historic fact. It's a bold declaration of what God has done in Christ. This Jesus God raised up again. It's a victory statement. You should all see it as that. We should always see it. The victory of Christ. All the forces of darkness were arrayed against Jesus. The people of Israel, the Roman armies, and the Roman Empire itself, arrayed against Jesus. Satan and his minions. There was lies, there was manipulations, there was the typical political stuff which we see today. So. What happens is, as you start to get older, at some point you start to realize that politicians, for the most part, not every last one, but for the most part, well, they resort to anything but truth to manage things. Because truth usually isn't in their favor. And so we saw all the political machinations going on. We should be no surprise. That's just standard fare. That's what the world has always been like. It's what America's pretty much been like. You just didn't know it until you got old enough to figure it out. But at least in perhaps years past or decades past, the machinations of the politicians were for a lot better things than they're trying to machinate now, if that's a word. But all this was against Jesus. This this Jesus God raised up. And it's a victory. It's a decisive victory. In the face of all this attempt to kill him, and get him out of the world get him out of the universe if they could god raised him up again no force but god could accomplish this and no force of darkness can ever undo it so some of you if you're like me you go through some deep oppression of satan at times and i know it i mean i i've been through it and i'll probably continue to go through it that's my lot in life Other people have theirs. Some people are sick all the time. Some people are this. Well, I'm always seem to be in gigantic warfare with Satan and his minions. But in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of whatever you're going through, no force of darkness can undo what God did at Calvary. None. And remember one thing. The kingly office of Christ is providentially executed for the redeemed. He's going to bring everybody to heaven. He's going to bring all that God has given him to heaven. That means you. It doesn't matter what you go through, it doesn't matter what spiritual darkness you're in, it doesn't matter what <clears throat> I don't know confusion you're going through in your life, no matter what, no matter what's going on. If you've gotten off into the weeds and even deep into the weeds and God is bringing you back, there's no sin too deep. There's no darkness too dark. There's no circumstance too complex for the one who reigns at the right hand of God, who's been raised up again, who has defeated every foe. And he's committed. God said, you're going to bring every one of my people to heaven. Every last one. The promises and dynamics of the Davidic covenant are now being realized and they are being established in Christ. They are being established in the new covenant. Remember, before all this happens, Jesus held up a chalice and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. It is the new covenant that has established these things, that has brought all these things together and is now the ultimate, final covenant of God. This Jesus God raised up again. And Peter appeals to eyewitness testimony. I mean, this is the the first message. And Peter says, God has raised him up, and we are witnesses. The whole first chapter of Acts is about eyewitness. Jesus is speaking to them for the space of 40 days. Infallible proofs. They go out and they watch him ascend into heaven. When they have to pick a replacement for Judas, it has to be somebody who's seen all that. We are all witnesses. Like the Davidic covenant, this idea of witness is huge. Peter identifies himself and all those that are with him. We are all witnesses. Not me, but we. Does that mean the 120 that were there gathered? We're not sure, but it's more than Peter. It's at least the 12, or the, well, the 12. By this time you've got Matthias, it? so you're back to 12 again. Now, eyewitness testimony in the ancient world is a big deal. Eyewitness testimony in Scripture is a big deal. One of the commandments of God says you shall not bear false witness, Right. Now, we usually extrapolate that into you don't lie as a more general statement, which I guess is fine if you want to do that, but that's not the original statement. And if someone does that, that's fine. Yeah, you shouldn't be lying. I mean, every now and then, you ha- as a sort of a tactic of uh, battle, sure, you're going to deceive. David did it when he pretended to, to be a, he was caught at the Philistines and he, he pretended to be a crazy person so they wouldn't know him. So he deceived them. But the commandment itself says you shall not bear false witness. Why would it be phrased like that? I mean, wouldn't it just be easier to say you shouldn't lie and that way, you know, we don't have to go through all these gyrations to make it into don't lie? Well, in the ancient world, what was the only sort of, I don't know, truth you could count on? Because there wasn't a lot of writing material. And things done out in rural areas weren't really done with you know, t- clay tablets and seals and stuff like that. They were set up monuments to be a representation of a covenant of sorts. And there are many covenants in the Old Testament. There are only five that are covenants with God in redemption. But in that ancient world, an eyewitness was vital to jurisprudence. And I probably said this before because it, it, it was amazing to me. I was sitting on a plane as we were getting loaded years ago, and I used to fly every week. And anybody that'd come on the plane, if they were clearly, you know, a foreigner, because they, they would say so, and I'd say, so why, why, why do you come to America? Why do you like America? And every time, every time they'd say, because where I come from, everything is corrupt. Sometimes they'd elaborate. Over in these countries that are particularly in the Middle East where a lot of these people are from, I hate to say it, but the the folks that were Russians, they were the coldest and the hardest heart. Doesn't mean all Russians are that, but those seem to be the ones I always met. I didn't even ask them. I'm like, "Ah, this guy will take me out in the back and kill me. That's literally how I felt sometimes. I remember when I was a cab driver and he started driving me to some different place, I went, oops, is this the end? I mean, it was that scary. These guys were... They had a hard life, uh, that's all I could say. But the ones that would talk to you and you could talk to without feeling like you were going to get you know, kidnapped or something, they tell you it was the corruption and they would say things like, you know, when you were in this place, this stand or that stand, you get a job and you only get the job because you know somebody and the person you know, you got to give 10% of your money to them and they have to give a percentage of that money to somebody else. And then if you're on the job, you've got to give money for this and you've got to give it. The whole place just runs on corruption. And that's a generalization. There are some good things, I'm sure, that go on. But that's what I heard from everybody. They loved America because America, at least it used to be, a place where there was justice. And so in an ancient world where there's going to be all this tendency to corruption, And you have to try to work through the justice system. The justice system absolutely depended on honest testimony. You shall not bear false witness because if you do, the justice system fails. And when justice fails, then everybody starts to live in corruption. Folks in Romani's tell me that stealing was a way of life under the communist regimes. I mean, they all said it. They said, you just stole, because if you didn't, you, you wouldn't make it, you wouldn't survive. Corruption, false witness, a judicial system that had failed. And so, in order to establish justice, witness-bearing is important. Now, it's interesting, in the 21st century, and I'm sure every one of you have heard by now the term AI deep fakes, right? Fakes that are so deep and so extensive, you just hardly tell them apart from the real thing. So here we are in the 21st century. In the first century, eyewitness testimony was decisive. And now in the 21st century, guess what's decisive? Someone was telling me on their job where they have to do a lot of research and things, he said, I cannot trust images and I cannot trust anything that's written. Because both of those are easily produced by AI. He said, I am going to have to personally talk on the phone with a person or Zoom with them or something like that, video conference with them and watch them say what they're saying in order to trust it. Well, that was the first century. Eyewitness testimony was everything and here we are back to it. And so Peter is saying all these things that gather up the entire Old Testament prophetic message and the entire momentum of God's history of redemption, and they are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ right now, we are all witnesses to what it took to bring that to pass. We are eyewitnesses. It's about his resurrection. When you look at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and I had to get a spreadsheet out. I spent all day Friday trying to get the spreadsheet to work to capture everything I thought it needed to capture. It was interesting, interesting study. I learned some things. A lot of things about the eyewitness appearances I just kind of assumed. But Jesus appeared to the women at the tomb, three of them, Matthew 28, Mark 16, John 20. Jesus appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Mark 16 and in Luke 24. Jesus appeared to all his disciples or most of his disciples several times in Jerusalem, Mark, Luke, John. The same chapters. Jesus appeared to his disciples in Galilee. Matthew 28 and John 21. His disciples were there when he ascended into heaven. Luke 24, Acts 1. These are appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. And you go to 1 Corinthians 15, you realize that the gospels don't capture every last thing. And John himself, and the final gospel, the gospel written around in the eighty A.D., talking about gospels written around sixty A.D., and he's pointing back to them, and he's saying, "I'm the last guy, and I'm here to tell you that all the things that have already been written, or could be written, you know, we haven't even begun to capture all the things." And so we haven't captured all of the appearances of Jesus in those Gospels. Some people say, well, if it's not in the Gospels, it didn't happen. That's not true at all. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, that there are a group of five, more than 500 brethren, all at once, who saw Jesus at the same time. We don't have that recorded anywhere except in, in 1 Corinthians 15. And then there was Paul God appears to him at Damascus. So if you add these folks up, you get 544 plus. Because there's phrases like, went and told the disciples, and the disciples, and all the rest. All the rest is used there. All the rest of the women, all the rest of the disciples. It's used a lot. So you really can't get an exact count. But it's at least 544 people saw Jesus in his risen from the dead state, And many of them saw him ascend into heaven. Now, Gwen, as she will often do, was listening to something on the radio, a sermon here or there, and she just mentioned one of them that sort of caught her attention. And in that message, she sort of iterated the things that that someone observed that, well, many of these witnesses were persecuted. In Acts chapter 3 through 9, you see the persecution, the persecution of the apostles, and later it expands to the whole church. Some of these died natural death or were martyred. 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Paul says, most of those 500 plus are alive, but some are fallen asleep in Jesus. We read in Acts 26, 10 that Paul says, I was there giving my consent when, when these believers were put to death. I wonder if some of those 500 were not Killed in the presence of Paul. Martyred. The 544 plus people saw Jesus rise, risen from the dead. And some of them, many of them, saw him go into heaven. And we have no record that any of them, to the day of their persecution, torture, and death even, not one of them ever retracted their story. That's quite amazing because the person who was observing this was someone who was in the Washington crowd and he said, you know, at at Nixon, you know, they tried to cover it up and there were 12 people involved there and it lasted three weeks before everybody started spilling their guts. No, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Not one person has ever said, retracted their statement that Jesus rose from the dead and he went into heaven. Not one. All have made their claim to have seen the risen Christ. And they maintained that claim to the end of their days. Now you all here, if you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. He's bearing witness to you that Jesus is in heaven and at the right hand of God. See, the Holy Spirit comes and all of a sudden Peter's talking about Jesus is risen and he's at the right hand of God in fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's the witness of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit witnesses to his own word and he witnesses to his own word that captures the historic realities of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit says these things are true and these witnesses are reliable. And you, 2,000 years later, like those 544, need to hold on to that confession and never retract it to the end of your day no matter what the opposition, no matter what becomes a problem in your life because of it. The Holy Spirit has born witness to you. Don't retract it. Stand on it. Stand firm. That's the basis, by the way, of your witnessing to others. So we use this word, I'm going to witness to someone else, because we're said to be Witnesses. So we take the term and we, you know, turn it into a verb and go, we're going to witness. And that's proper. What are you witnessing about? Are you supposed to, you know, figure out all the philosophical problems that everybody throws at you? Is that what you're supposed to witness about? Is that your job? Someone in our midst is a lawyer. I bet if I asked him, I said, you know, when you ask somebody on the witness stand, the witness stand, notice and you ask them a question and they start talking about other things what do you have to do and you hear all these little tricks I guess you know and learn to get them back on track don't go off track you have one purpose and you're talking to someone about Jesus whether it's one person or a thousand people it's to talk about the facts of the gospel and to affirm the truth of them because you know him who you believe that's your whole purpose So witnessing in that sense is pretty easy. Do you believe that Jesus came into the world? Well, we have tons of evidence for it, and you just verify it. And when someone says, because they've listened to some silly thing on the Internet, well, we didn't even know if Jesus came. Just say, that's just silly. Jesus is the most provable person in ancient history. If we can't verify Jesus, then forget Alexander the Great and all the others that you are so sure existed in history. Jesus existed in history. Jesus died on a Roman cross. That's verified in history. And he died for sin. That's verified in the Psalms, and Isaiah 53. It's verified when Psalm 22 comes and says, Why have you forsaken me? It's verified in Genesis 22 when Abraham is in type killing his own son. It's verified when, in Genesis, Noah is offering up sacrifices to God. It's verified in Leviticus. It's verified all over that Old Testament. That's why that Old Testament is so important. Because if people start denying the realities of the New Testament and say, well, this was just invented by a bunch of people in the first century, you just go, well, that's not possible because it already existed 2,000 years before. You see, we live in a day when people are told to challenge that. All of the liberal stuff that we think is just sideline stuff is now mainstream for people who want to talk about Jesus. Jesus. And so you don't have to know about all the bad things that are said or all the foolish things or all the confusing things or all the mixed up things or all the distorted things. You just got to know the truth. I used to watch Perry Mason. And always lawyers are trying to get the, the witnesses confused. Don't get confused. Stick to what you know. Stick to the facts of the gospel. They are the power of God. Now the gospel as well, the gospels, and here's something you need to stand on. Can people say, how can you trust the word of God? That will be the question. Because in the end, it boils down to authority. What's the authority for what you believe? What's the authority for what you are proclaiming? What's the authority for what they believe? That's what it all boils down to, epistemology, knowledge. What do you know? Why do you know it? How much do you know How certain are you? What is the level of certitude you can present about it? And we're in a battle about truth. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is talking about you know, weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to do what? Not slings and arrows and swords, not political manipulations so that we can have some, I don't know, Christianized America. But dealing with philosophies, dealing with every high thing. And Paul is writing to a group of people in a philosophical Greek world where the philosophy of the Greeks was being mixed with the gospel until it ended up in what's known as Gnosticism, the greatest enemy of the church that the church has ever seen, was the blending of philosophy and the gospel. And Paul says the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to casting those things down. And here they are at it again, Satan at it again. Hey, it worked in the second, third, fourth century. Maybe it'll work again today, just mixing worldly philosophy with a little bit of Bible. And we have to deal with that. And how do you deal with it? You don't have to become experts in philosophy. Become an expert in what you already know. We are all witnesses. We are witnesses of truth. We are witnesses of what we know to be true. And again, I just remember encountering a fellow who spent his li- every day of his life, he must have, trying to figure out how to trip up Christians. And the only way I could answer, and we talked about this, we were all over the place talking about who is God and everything. And finally, I just had to say to him, here's what we know. You have already said that you don't know God, and that's clear. You don't know God. But I'm telling you, I know God, and you can't prove that I don't. You know God and that's your witness and that's where you stand. Don't let people trip you up. Don't let them confuse you. Don't let them distract you. Don't let them let a whole truckload of squirrels out there for you to follow. Stick with the reality. The Gospels are verified eyewitness testimony. We'll start a little bit with Luke and then we'll... Pick up, Lord willing, next week. This is the point. We are all witnesses. And here is Luke who wrote his gospel based on a lot of interviews, a lot of testimony he collected. And like a good historian, he took all his materials. And he had to organize them the way he thought to present the gospel the way he thought it was good. Not necessarily. It says in order, but it really means in an orderly fashion. And so Luke thought that this is the best way to present the gospel. And he says, here's where I got my material from. Luke's gospel is based on a sober-minded testimony from credible men. Luke chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Luke is that gospel that opens up, and it's so powerful today. Maybe in centuries past, this opening of Luke you know, wasn't really significant. You know, it was interesting, but you know, whatever. But now we live in a, in a day where everybody's attacking the veracity of the, Bible, of the gospels, the authenticity of the gospels. And bless Luke's heart. He's one of the people I want to hug when I get to heaven. Say, thank you, Luke, for those first four verses. They saved our, our uh, selves in the 21st century. Because this has been one of and continues and remains one of the big attacks on the Gospels, that they're not authentic. And so Luke says, hey, here's how I wrote my Gospel. Here are the reasons for it. Here's how I approached it. I gathered all this testimony and I gathered testimony of eyewitnesses, people who were not only eyewitnesses but who were ministers of the word, the people whom God has ordained to present the gospel and I have provided a sober-minded testimony from these credible men. I'm pretty sure he included some of his interviews with women. I mean, Mary Magdalene at at the tomb had her own experience of Jesus. Well, where did Luke get that? Do you think maybe he talked to Mary? But he took all this eyewitness testimony, but the framework of it was the apostles, those who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, those who had the Holy Spirit in such a way it was clear that they were God's men, those who also did miracles like Jesus, those whom God bore witness to. And from that he constructed a gospel. A gospel in which all of the facts about Jesus are incorporated. The ones that are significant, the ones that are needful, the ones that make sense to future generations. It's just like the Old Testament. God didn't, didn't record or have recorded as Scripture all the prophecies that were given during those thousands of years. He recorded the ones that were significant to the bigger picture of the history of redemption. So it is with the Gospels. Everything that Jesus said and did isn't recorded. They had space, uh, problems back then, technology. So they recorded the ones that mattered the most that the Holy Spirit directed them to. Now something notable about these Gospels is when you read them, you don't realize it you don't think about it, probably, but these gospels are free from flights of fancy and embellishment that was so often found in the ancient world. When someone says, "Oh, the gospels are fantasy." I mean, people, someone being rise from the dead and they go and mock," and you just go, "Resurrection from the dead is a fantasy. How about like, that's the hope of everybody?" That's not a fantasy. Fantasies would be the Gilgamesh epic. Some of you have been reading Genesis, and there's a, a famous document very short about the creation of the world. It's called the Gilgamesh epic. You should read it. You can look it up online and read it, and then you'll see what I mean about flights of fantasy. Another one, unfortunately, is Fox's Book of Martyrs. You read about the early times, the early centuries, and unfortunately you'll be coming across something that sounds really good, and then you come across and they'll go, what? That's, that's just old fables and lore. So you have to be careful with that. There's none of that in the Gospels. None of that. Their eyewitness testimony is sober-minded, and their eyewitness testimony blends perfectly into coherent, sound doctrine. And their eyewitness testimony is consistent with the whole Bible. And the reason Luke was selective is because there were lots of versions of the gospel and what Jesus said and did floating around. Now, we have a Bible, 2.2 million words. And you think of all the crazy things that are said out there in Christianity, right? When you already have an authority for the only truth there's supposed to be. Well, what about when you didn't have these gospels? And all these sayings of Jesus were, were, were wandering around in history, just floating around out there. All of these stories were out there floating around. Now, many of those stories were well-intentioned. Remember, all through the Gospels. Now, Jesus would say, okay, I've healed you. Don't tell anybody. Go do what you're supposed to do with Moses. Make the offering. And what would they do? They just go it everywhere, right? Those stories were out there even when Jesus was alive. And they took on lives of their own, those stories. And so they were based in something true. They were well-intentioned, but could you trust it to com- 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 get a gospel together on? No. There are other versions of Jesus and who he was and what he did that were not well-intentioned. Can you think of one? The resurrection, the guards, the tomb. Go and say that you know, his disciples stole him away. There were a lot of false things, intended to be false, misconceptions. I mean, at his trial, how many lies were spoken about him? They spent hours trying to get people to lie, and none of their their lies would agree. So there are a lot of not well-intentioned versions and stories about Jesus floating around out there. But Luke knew that the matters were momentous, and when he composed his gospel, he relied only on verifiable eyewitness testimony that's what Jesus says of which we are witnesses so we're supposed to be witnesses again we're focusing as a body on evangelism be witnesses of what you know don't worry about the rest don't, don't worry about the squirrels they throw at you don't pet them they'll bite you <clears throat> as cute as they are don't, don't let them tangle you up You just say, I'm here to tell you about Jesus who has saved me from my sin and he's given me eternal life. And if you think that's fantasy, well, as it says in Mark, he that believes and is baptized will be saved, he that disbelieves will be condemned. You're not there to force someone's belief or unbelief. You are there to be a witness to present the truth of the gospel and let the Holy Spirit work as he will. Trust in that. Your witness is yours and yours alone. Give it to everybody you encounter. So let's pray. Heavenly Father we come to your throne and uh, Lord we thank you that, that your word your gospel has not been left to opinion has not been left to gossip has not been left to stories that shift and change over time your gospel and your gospels are based 100% on eyewitness testimony of credible people Lord, we can trust it. We can believe it. We can hang our hat on it. We can take it to the bank. We can live our lives by it. And we can testify to the world whatever consequences result. Lord, we just pray that you would always give us a sense that your testimony is true. It's sure. It's certain. It's well-founded. And that we can give that testimony out anywhere and yeah, it's not going to be received. Not going to be received most of the time. Lord, we tend to, you know us, we tend to think, well, I told somebody about you and, and, and nothing happens, so I'm going to get depressed. And you start thinking, well, you know, this isn't worth it. But Lord, it is every time. And Lord, give us hearts, give us a sense of the urgency and the momentousness of this gospel and that we will present it wherever and whenever we can and pray that, Lord, you will bring your Holy Spirit into someone's mind and heart, someone unexpected, and you will save them from their sin. And Lord Jesus, thank you that you did that for us. How many of us were people thinking, oh, well, that person will never get saved? They're too heady or they're too arrogant or they're too deep in darkness or they're too sin- sinful or they're too this or they're too that. All the thereto th- things you and your sovereignty overcame and brought us to yourself by this gospel. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.